how how about like your self perception? I mean, to be, I mean, let's call it what it is to be 35 and have this much success. Do you see yourself differently than you did eight years ago? I mean, that's a good question. I think like one big thing that anyone asks in my situation is like, how, how much is luck and how much is, is deserved? And, and to be honest, like, I, I think it's not a cop-out answer. I actually think they both matter. I think that like, there's an immense amount of luck that comes into, and, and you see it because there's so many talented people that start companies that are good. Like when we started yeah. Databricks, there was like five other companies pursuing similar ideas that had good teams. There's just a lot of luck in it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important that if you have a lot of success or if you don't have a lot of success, either way, you don't, you don't, don't give yourself too much credit and don't uh, punish yourself too much because of like how much is just outside of your control. It's, it's quite immense. You're listening to episode seven of Success Unscripted. I'm a couple days late releasing this one because I lost my voice last week and I couldn't record the intro, but I think it's well worth the wait. I speak with Patrick Wendell, who's an old buddy of mine from high school and is a co-founder of Databricks. They have a really interesting founder story, so you'll hear all about that. And as their VP of engineering, one of the things that he's working on is helping support teams leverage AI. We also talk about their decision to bring on their chief customer officer and the impact that he's had on the company. I think it's a really fun one, so I hope you enjoy it. I'm Sarah Roberts, and you're listening to Success Unscripted. Do you want to explain how we know each other, or do you want me to? Yeah, I'm trying to think how I... So we, we grew up on the hard streets of San Francisco <laughs> in the 19, the early 2000s, and uh, we know each other from growing up, and then some career intersection more recently in the last few years. I would say it was more than 90s almost. Yeah, that's true. in grade school, technically. I'm trying not to like reveal how old we are to the world, you know? 35. <laughs> well, um, you are. I'm not yet. <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah, you're right. It was like it was like 90s and then crossing into the 2000s. But we graduated from our high joint high school in 2007. So that was definitely 2000s. Yeah. 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 And I remember Emily, your younger sister was a year younger than me at Hamlin. And I just thought she was the cutest thing in the whole world. Oh, yeah. So like I've known of the Wendells since like That's at true. least first grade. Now you don't even live here anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm in Denver. Well, you know, I wanted a big house and I don't have billions of dollars yet. Um, so, so Patrick, what do you do? So I'm a co-founder of a company called Databricks. And I, uh, I do a bunch of different founder things, but I also run uh, a fraction of our engineering teams. Day, that's my day job, basically, is a lot in product and engineering, but then doing other founder activities as well, like leadership hiring and company strategy and vision stuff as well. Which is why I wanted you to be on here is because I know you've said that you, while you're not a customer success leader, you do work with your customer success org quite a bit. And Databricks, I mean, for people who don't know, I mean, it's what, a 7,000 person company now? And um, yep, in that neighborhood. Yeah. So like really doing well. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting because it's like a, it's an enterprise 
company. So we sell we sell products to like not to end consumers. So so people may not have heard of a lot of people I just like meet casually or I know in my like they they are not as familiar with it because it's not a company that sells things to consumers, but it is a pretty yeah, it's not like Uber or something or Facebook, but it is a, a pretty large company these days. And um and we're doing a lot of interesting stuff. But do we like we are kind of behind a lot of the consumer products people see, but we're not the ones selling it directly. And I don't even know. Are you like databases, containers? Like what's the <laughs> What do we actually do? Yeah, what do you actually do? Yeah. So what we do is like it, it's actually something that um so the company was founded by a group of of folks from Berkeley. Uh, and you dropped Europe, out of your PhD program to start. Yeah, it. I dropped out. So so it was a handful of um, it was like a few faculty and a few grad students from Berkeley that left. And I, I have like the the infamous distinction of being the only one that didn't actually get a PhD because the other students that dropped out were really close to getting it, so they kind of were able to finish. And the f- professors obviously already had PhDs, but I am the black sheep a little bit because I I wasn't even close. I mean, whatever. Well, in, in, in certain circles, that kind of stuff is like important. But, um, so I, uh, was interested in the research they were doing. They were, they were doing this research about how to apply, um, like really large amounts of data and to do interesting things in order to like often involving machine learning or, or other types of inference on that data. So, so a good example, like when I joined, so I joined this lab at Berkeley and they had just competed in this thing. This was a long time ago, but in 2010, uh, Netflix did that. So that was when Netflix was like a DVD in the mail company. Yeah. That was that. weird. Was it, was yeah. Amazon still just like a bookstore? Amazon was, I don't remember. I think Amazon was into e-commerce at that point generally, but Netflix yeah. was like, you would like get Netflix in the mail. Yeah. And, I remember that. Um, and they, and they had this, this interesting, uh, like machine learning AI challenge that they were trying to figure out inside of Netflix, which is that they were, um, they, once someone had rented a few movies, they wanted to know what to recommend them to rent next. Yes. And they actually have a ton of data. They, they have like a ton of data, which is that they know every person who's ever rented movies. They know like all the movies they've ever rented. And so what they wanted to try and do is like predict if a new person has rented a few movies, like what should I recommend them to rent next? And it turns out that if you have a lot of data, you can do like machine learning and, and statistics and kind of like model out how to do that really well. And, and Netflix had had this very public competition globally. So they basically like released their data sets to the whole world and said, anyone who can do this better than we're doing it now, the, the winner, whoever does it the best gets a million dollars. So it was actually like a huge, it's kind of a cool sort of PR thing slash science thing. And this was, this was before I went to Berkeley, but the group that I joined, I, I thought they were cool because they had actually participated in this contest. And, um, and to do that, to solve that problem, they ended up needing to build like lots of new software systems and do a bunch of research. And they actually, it's funny in the end, they came in second. So they, so they, um, and the problem is like, you don't get anything if you're second, like the first prize gets a million dollars and the set, the second prize gets nothing. So it's a little bit of a bummer, but, but I joined that research group because they were focused on stuff in this area. Um, and, and that, and what they really were trying to figure out is like when data sets get really, really big. So that was a huge data set. It was like they had every person that's ever rented something on Netflix, all their history. And, yeah. and 
how do you take really large data sets and then do some kind of machine learning or uh, AI on top of them to like make predictions about what should happen, what will happen in the future. And it's some combination of like computer hardware, software, statistics, and, and actually there, there were some big breakthroughs in like the early 2010s in that area that happened in kind of the academic community. And so I went to those research, that research group, but then within a year or two, we spun the company out of the research. Mm -hmm. And by 2013, we founded Databricks. And what Databricks was focused on was like, take those types of technologies that are for really like large scale data processing, especially for machine learning and uh, make them accessible to like the average company, basically. Um, and so, right. so that was a many, many year journey and uh, involved a lot of different phases. But basically today, if you look at kind of any company, um, like I'm trying to think which customers we have that are public, that are referenceable. I mean, Spotify does that kind of thing. Is Databricks behind that? There's only a certain number of our customers. I can, ex I can say that they are our customers. Okay, so I need right. to be very careful about that. Okay. Okay. But that's, a but they have similar technology. That's an example of a company that does all kinds of like, so that use case I talked about was like recommendations basically. And like every app you use that has recommendations in it. So, so many companies, those are powered based on Databricks, but it's not just for recommendations. Like um, it's for any kind of thing where you're trying to model and predict the future. Uh, so as an example, one customer we have is like um, Walgreens. Uh, mm -hmm. so that's, you may not think of that as a very tech techie company. It's no. like a pharmaceutical company. Yeah. Their but, app's like, okay. Okay. Their app's okay. But, but actually the, the big challenge in, in consumer pharma pharmaceuticals is like inventory management. Like basically wow. when you, when you go to a pharmacy, if you need like your medication and they don't have it, you're going to be like super upset and you're not going to go back there. Right. Um, you're going to go just switch to like Amazon or something. Wow. Um, but if like it's expensive for them to like have this huge inventory because they like they if they if there's something that's not very popular and they buy a bunch of it, they've actually paid for it often by the time when they actually like buy it to be in the pharmacy. So, well, and then it expires after a certain. Period. Yeah, and it expires and stuff. So like it's this really difficult modeling problem of like, how do you basically get, um, you know, you want as you you want almost it never to be the case that someone doesn't have what they need, but you don't want to spend too much. Yeah. And that's across like tens of thousands of different locations they have. And so they use Databricks to do like a bunch of modeling to figure out how to, to, to optimize their inventory. And th that modeling is very sophisticated. Like for instance, if there's like a flu season happening or there's a flu in a particular area, they need to like stock more, you know, of the right. flu medications. Right. So like, um, so, so it turns out that by using lots of data, by using machine learning, they can kind of like put these intelligent features in their, in the way they run their business. And that's done on Databricks. So, so, so it was a, a many year journey to kind of like build those capabilities, but, but I would say we're a somewhat general purpose, uh, tool for, for data science teams in those companies to, to do whatever they need to do to like apply machine learning to make their business better. And, and the use cases are quite varied, but um, wow. does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You, cause I, I never really knew what Databricks did. And um, you, you explained that in a way that even I could understand it. So I appreciate that. Um, so was there like, 
I mean, you're at Berkeley, you're doing some research, you decide to spin out Databricks, but I'm curious, was there like a specific moment when you were like, this is going to be huge? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so companies go through phases and like in the beginning, you're just trying to find that initial product vision and even decide what you're doing. Right. And then there's like seeing the first signs of product market fit. And then there's like being convinced of product market fit. And then there's the scaling phase. If you ever, if you get the product market fit mm-hmm. and like, unfortunately, most companies, well, I don't think it's necessarily unfortunate, but startups are high risk. Everyone yeah. knows that most of them don't get to like pass the first one or two phases. Like most of them, they don't even figure out really what they want to build or they don't really see even the initial signs of product market fit. And, um, and that's like totally fine. I think that's the whole point of doing these startups is like a lot of them will fail and that's okay. But, um, but Databricks was one of the lucky ones to like actually make it through several of the phases. And um, I think for me, I think there was like two milestones that were important. Our first customers in quotes were like, our friends that we begged to use the product for zero dollars, right. like and and especially for an enterprise for for a product for for businesses, even just like trying the product is hard. Like yeah. they have to get permission in their company. They have to connect. Especially our our product is for processing your most sensitive data. So like right. it's much har- harder to try than like oh just try this app on your phone. Right. Yeah. Um. So. So I would say our first few customers, we begged them to be our customers. And it was like friends and family and like um, literally like our CEO's wife was like one of our first, like her company was mm. like using it, paying zero dollars and just basically somewhere between a customer and like someone doing like, like doing uh, a favor. A favor. Yeah. And so then of that cohort of the first like 10 customers, um, a couple of them like converted to really pay, serious paying customers after that. And, and the first, I don't even remember who it was, but I remember the, f- the first time that someone really paid us for the product and it wasn't just like them doing us a favor. That was a milestone in my mind. Cause at least we had one, there was one person in the world that wanted to pay for this product and like, mm-hmm. it needs to start there. Right. I mean, there yeah. needs to be like someone to start. So that was a milestone. And then a few years later, in I think 2015, we signed our first million dollar customer. So it was like a customer that was committing to spend a million dollars on Databricks. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty cool because like at that point, it's funny because I turned, I was in a meeting with just in a one-on-one with one of our other founders. And we just both got the email that was like, they just signed for a million dollars. And, um, and then I just turned to him and I was like, oh my gosh, I think this thing is actually going to work like this company, like it's going to work. Um, so that was pretty cool because you had some, some company that felt like, wow, I'm getting so much value. I mean, the way that they make those purchasing decisions is that they need to feel like they're getting a lot more value than that. Right. They need to feel like, like, oh, wow. Like we're using this to improve fraud detection when you swipe a credit card. And like, that's really important for us. And, and that's, that's hundreds of millions of dollars every year and we can improve. So who cares? We'll pay Databricks 1 million, no problem. Um, so I would say that was the other big moment, which was now eight years ago, uh, was when we signed the first million dollar customer, because then I think we felt like we had something that was repeatable and like we could actually sell this to many other companies. Okay. So you've mentioned before that 
culture was something that you guys were really intentional about. And I mean, I can imagine going from what a handful of co-founders to 7,000 people, your culture is going to change a lot. How do you, how do you think about setting that vision, putting guardrails in place? Like, how do you, how do you make that work at hypergrowth? Once you hit product market fit and then you have money coming in and you have investment coming in because they see the promise of the product, um, you have to start scaling the company. And the only way to scale uh, in most businesses is to hire. Mm -hmm. Um, So at that point, you need to decide like you suddenly have the problem of how do I influence the behavior of like all these people that have joined the company. And when it was like, when it was the founders plus four other people, you know, we just worked every day with them. So like we could, they just kind of started to understand the culture um, and had and helped shape the culture, those early employees. Um, But we kind of were all on the same page, basically. Like we all had consistent norms. We acted the same way. We made decisions the same way because we were a very close and tight knit group. Um, So then the question is like, Oh, now there's a hundred people in this company or now there's 500 people or a thousand people or 7,000 people. And, um, and how do I, how do we try and have a cohesive company that's, that's acting in a similar way that has the consistent set of values when it's completely impractical that like we could personally be, the founders could personally be talking and mind melding with every person in the company. You don't know everybody at Databricks. Exactly. Like I will, it's a, it's a funny experience because now like someone will come introduce themselves to me that works at Databricks and like, I'll be like, oh, wow, I've, we've never talked ever before. Yeah. Um, so so the, the levers that you have are like, there's not that many levers you have to influence behavior. And the, the two biggest ones that, that I've seen over the years have been, one is like, who are the leaders that you hire? And I know you do a lot of leadership hiring in your job. Yeah. Um, like what, what happens is you hire leaders and then they go build teams and then the, 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 the makeup of their team in terms of how they act, who they hire, it, it, it reflects the the values and the culture of that person you've hired. Right. Um, so, so in my view, the, the, one of the biggest, the, one of the two big levers you have is like, who do you choose to hire as leaders in your company? Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't mean that they need to exactly be like you culturally. In fact, it can be good to like have, um, some diversity of like background and of philosophy amongst the leadership team, but they need to, there needs to be some baseline of principles that you have um, in terms of like how to act and the leaders need to manifest, like they, they need to, to manifest your like non-negotiables basically right. in terms of how they act. And they also need to be people who understand that like part of their job as leader is to understand the culture of the company and that the way that they're going to be a leader in your company might be a little different than they would be a leader in, in other companies. So, so a lot of the best leaders, like when we would interview them and we'd say like, you know, what's your philosophy on X or Y? Their answer is like, well, I need to learn what the company's philosophy is about that thing first. And then, you know, I want to understand how you do it here. And then I also have an opinion, but, but like, they understand that part of their role is to kind of fit the context that they're in. Hmm. So that's probably your biggest lever in, as uh, in scaling the company. And, um, and then number two is like, how do you articulate and enforce the values that you care about uh, to the, to the everyday employee? Because I think it's important that employees hear the values directly from the founders and not only through the, through their like layers of management, because you never know, like, 
you hope that people are sending the message correctly. But if it's going through six layers of management, you never quite know what's coming out on the other side. Yeah. So, um, so, so most really good companies like articulate their values directly to employees and Databricks had to decide. I think once we were, we did it pretty early. Once we were a few hundred employees, we, we kind of came up with some principles that we care about and articulated them. And we, we integrated, not only do we just talk about them a lot, but we, we integrate them into all the, if you want them to have teeth, basically, you need to kind of integrate them into the processes in the company. Yeah. So like when you're hiring, you're evaluated against our, our cultural principles. And when there's promotions, you're evaluated against our cultural mm-hmm. principles. And people like use the principles day to day when they're they're when they're making decisions and they like argue and say, hey, whoa, hold on. Like, you mm-hmm. know, we have a principle that's like be data driven. Right. I mean, it's very natural because we're a company that's a data company. So like you will hear in meetings someone like, whoa, hold on, like you're not being data driven in the way you're articulating that, like, like, and kind of calling each other out on, on, um, enforcing and like acting by the principles. So, so I think that like, also the, the best ones, you know, there's this famous, I think that Reed Hastings, the, the founder of, um, I think he's a Netflix founder. There's, there's a, um, deck he has about cultural principles and one thing he shows that's really funny is like the enron enron was this company that had like massive fraud happening when we were kids if you remember i remember that and like um and if you look at their cultural principles it's like integrity honesty (laughs) like it's all these things that are like and the, the point he was trying to make which i totally agree with is like good cultural principles are ones where you're saying something like sort of controversial, like like you're saying something that's that is is not just a, um, a tautology, which is means like a, a statement that's just always true. Like no one would ever argue the inverse. Like like if your principle is like oh be honest, like who would ever argue a, the inverse of that? That's not really helping me make decisions. I try to be honest, anyways. Like when I'm, but but like there's one that's very famous from from Facebook, which is not our principle. But Mark Zuckerberg said, "Move fast and break things." Like, yes, 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 that yes. Was his principle. Mark used to say that a lot at Zenefest. And like, that's saying something because you're saying, dude, there's a trade off. You can like move slow and things will be safe, but you won't move very fast. Or you can move fast and there's going to be some like dead bodies along the way. And so that principle is at least helpful because it guides decision making when you're right. trying to make a decision and you're like, oh, well, if we do this, well, there's some risk. You know, like, okay, my guidance is to like move fast. Whereas if it's a very generic platitude, like be honest, mm-hmm. like how does that help? I mean, I was already planning to be honest in life. So yeah. I think we've tried to like articulate principles that it's very clear, like there's a trade off in life and you're choosing to be on this side of the trade off. Mm-hmm. Instead of just very generic statements, which end up being like kind of useless, like they don't really help me make decisions. Basically, they might sound good on a slide, but like, um, so I think that there's an art to even like choosing those principles, but, um, but definitely encoding the culture was important as we got bigger. Do you feel like your life has changed a lot? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it has and it hasn't. Like, I think that the early years of a startup are really, really hard. And like, I see it. I I do occasionally advise startups now. And you're just like, it. people have a very romantic vision of what it's like to start a company. They think it's like, oh, you have this eureka moment and you like go off and come up with the most amazing product. And then like, you just strike gold. 
but it's actually like very unglamorous and very, very hard. Um, and it's hard because, you know, no one by default, no one wants the product you're trying to sell. Like, like you don't just come up with things and everyone wants it. Like you need, it's, it's a, it's a real slug to even like come up with the right product and convince people that they, that it's good for them and sell it. Um, but then also operationally, like it's very hard to hire when you're a tiny startup because, because no one believes in you. Nobody wants to take the risk. Yeah. No one believes in you at the beginning. And they, and frankly, they shouldn't believe in you. You haven't done anything yet. So like, um, so you have to fight, you have like very few resources and Mm -hmm. you also yourself don't really know what you're doing because, because very few people start companies that already operate at large, at large companies. Like people just start it when they're young and they can take a lot of risk in their life. So, so you're like trying to learn yourself how to do things. You're trying to sell a product that, that no one wants at the beginning and you're, you don't, you can't hire. And like, it's just brutal. And it's not, it's not brutal in a way that things are elegant. It's brutal in a way that like everything is messed up. So so I think that people romanticize it, but it's really, really hard at the beginning, which is why I have immense respect for anyone, whether or not the thing succeeded. In fact, I probably have even more respect for people where the thing didn't succeed, because imagine doing all of that and the thing doesn't even succeed and you've like killed yourself for it. So, yeah. So I think that like those early days are very, very hard and life, life is, is much better now. It doesn't mean that they're not there aren't challenges, but the company doesn't face like existential questions on a weekly basis, which Mm -hmm. is really nice. Um, and, and we're generally like the quality of people we can hire is, is great right now because we're, we have that positive momentum where like things are going well, so you can hire better people and then that helps you do better. And then you can, you know, keep, keep spinning the wheel. Um, but so I would say the main way life has changed is that it's just the, the first few years are like the most fun I never want to have again. That's how I talk <laughs> about it. Right. Um, so that's gotten much better. How, how about like your self-perception? I mean, to be, I mean, let's call it what it is to be 35 and have this much success. Do you see yourself differently than you did eight years ago? I mean, that's a good question. I think like one big thing that anyone asks in my situation is like how, how much is luck and how much is, is deserved? Um, because there, and and to be honest, like, I I think it's not a cop-out answer. I actually think they both matter. I think that like, there's an immense amount of luck that comes into, and, and you see it because there's so many talented people that start companies that are good. Like when we started Databricks, there was like five other companies pursuing similar ideas that had good teams. And like, there's just so many, especially in the early days, there's so much like you just happen to land the right customer at the right time. And you have something that gets good media coverage that you weren't expecting. And like, there's just a lot of luck in it. Um, So I think it's important that if you have a lot of success or if you don't have a lot of success, either way, you don't, you don't, don't give yourself too much credit and don't uh, punish yourself too much because of like how much is just outside of your control. It's, it's quite immense. Yeah. Um, now on the other hand, I do think like luck will give you opportunities. Uh, but over time, 
you're given many opportunities and, and it's up to you to some extent how well you execute on them and how well you take advantage. And so there is definitely a skill component. And, and in that regard, I am proud of the work that we've done and like proud of the, the things we've accomplished. Um, but I try not to like, I actually think most of the founding team of Databricks is, is trying to have some humility as we go through the process. And I think that like, you do get these people that, that do one thing that kind of ends up going well. And then they suddenly think they're like uh, gods or something. So, so I I really think that's not healthy way of thinking. Um, and so, so I've tried to like, um, I don't know. I think, I mean, you've known me for a long time. I think my personality is like not drastically different than it was a while, even like when I was a kid. No. So no, you're the same. And I think the same is true of most of the co-founders of Databricks. Like people have managed to stay pretty grounded. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I don't know if that answers your question, but no, I appreciate it. Um, tell me about customer success at Databricks. Yeah, so customer success it evolved for us over the years, and like in the very first few years, we were, the founders were the customer success team, like because that's what your job is as a founder at the beginning. Like you're just, I like personally would onboard our customers and like, I would like personally check in with them and see how they're doing and try and close those initial friends and family to be actual customers and stuff. So, um, so I think that like, it is funny of all the departments, customer success really is kind of the closest to like what the founders actually would do in the early days of the company Mm. in terms of like what mattered. But that was version one, which was just like, we didn't have any departments, period. It was just the founders doing everything. Um, Then I think at some point, we built out like some of the constituent parts of customer success. So we had like a support function and we didn't really have customer success in the traditional set. We didn't even like have that name in the company for a department. And then we had a great leader that came in. His name is Hatim, uh, Hatim Shafiq, and he's still, um, he's at Databricks. What a cool Uh, name. but he had been a chief customer success officer at AppDynamics. And he like taught us what customer success was basically. And, you know, he kind of looked around and was like, hey, look, you have these like different areas that are, they're very like, they're like locally optimizing for some metrics that they're focused on. Like our support team was like really optimized on how, like what percentage of the tickets they responded to and how quickly, which is good. Yeah, certainly like every support team should be focused on that, but it should be in service of some higher level target that the company has. And so what Hatem did is he like got all these functions together um, and he, which was like some combination of like account management and onboarding and uh, and support. I'm trying to think what else. I think uh, education and training, yeah, which is a big thing for us, also went under that. And he unified those efforts. And he actually also worked with Ali, our CEO, and the rest of the founding team, and basically said, "Look, we need to decide as a group what's our north star. What are we optimizing for this 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 set of efforts?" And we actually decided because there's many things people look at. They look at churn and renewals and customer satisfaction and like support response latency and all this stuff. Um, so he, he actually like worked with us to set the top level goal of the department to be, to grow the usage amongst our customers, mm-hmm. get our customers, get the, the, 
the usage up, have a, as much usage across our customers of the product as possible, yeah. which is a non-traditional customer success metric. So this was very, and by the way, we call it consumption because that's just like the word we use because we yeah. have this consumption style pricing where like, it's kind of like metered, like as you yeah. use more, yeah. you pay well, more. And I mean, I would argue that the reason why it's not a super common success metric is because a lot of companies can't actually measure that very well. Like if you can measure also, some people call it engagement, like how often you're logging into the product and how often are you using it and what parts of the product, like that is ideal. But a lot of times there's, there's just not the sophistication within the technology to even understand that. So the fact that you... Yeah, like that's how we actually charge. So we, we can measure it very well. And and it, and it caused this this set of teams to start to have a very cohesive vision. Mm. For instance, like in support, you might have a customer that um, is is a tiny, tiny company and the person using your product just wants to send your support team questions every day right. um, and has infinite questions. Yes. Um, you might, you might also have a huge, really successful com- customer that is like very, very limited in their use of your support team and doesn't really engage with the team at all, um, but is spending a ton of money. And if you just look at like, I would say naive metrics, like, oh, how often are we responding to support tickets? Yes. Well, you're going to spend all your time making sure you keep up with that, qu- that really noisy customer. Yes. And you're going to, the big customer is not really bothering you. So you're just going to kind of ignore that. But what's actually right for the business to drive consumption is the opposite. The business should probably, you know, try and contain that really noisy small customer. And and the customer is always right. But also you need to like be bounded in how much you're going to invest in a customer that's tiny. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, and the business should probably be like actively engaging with the big customer. They might not be sending a lot of support requests, but we should be spending more time on them. Maybe we should call them and say, do you need help on anything? Like, how are you doing? Let's like have a meeting. Why don't you meet one of our founders? So, so I think that like the, the thing that Hatem did really well was he up-leveled the vision of the department. What are we optimizing for? And then that helped give guidance to the different department, yeah. sub areas of customer success in terms of uh, how to think about their own metrics and really like understand what they're optimizing for. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, the whole game of customer success from an economic perspective is like, you're going to invest some amount of resources in to customer success and you're hopefully getting out, uh, a huge return in terms of the engagement and growth of your customers. And the, the, his choice of looking at consumption as the main metric for customer success really helped make that ROI super clear because right. like we know how much we're spending right. on the department and then we know how much is coming out. That's their top level goal. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool how he did that. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was about to say the same thing is that it's not always that clear, even if you can measure engagement or consumption or whatever, that's not necessarily tied to revenue in the way that it is for Databricks. So that's, um, that makes it, it, like you said, clear what the ROI is, but also like easier to kind of make that case for it, for the investment, I mean. When did you know that you needed to bring this guy on? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I think like it's a little bit of like push and a little bit of pull. If I remember correctly, Ali was connected, like we had in our, 
when you're scaling, there's always in the back of your head, like every executive function needs to be built out. Like when you start a company, mm-hmm. you don't have product management, you don't have marketing, you don't have sales, you don't have customer success, you don't have legal. So like we were in a multi-year journey to build every single one of those functions. Yeah. And, um, and then I think as we, as we looked at like how to approach that, it was some combination of like the ones we thought were the most urgent, but also like when finding leaders can be opportunistic and sometimes like you just get connected with someone and they're just amazing in this area. So I I don't remember if there was an active search going on for a head of customer success. It was certainly on our short list of the early executive roles we needed to find. And this is something our CEO would know better than me, but I, I believe there was like a somewhat opportunistic uh, introduction to Hatem, and mm, yeah, and and I do remember that Ali had called me and said, "Oh, this guy I think is really good. Like, we need to like really pay close attention to him." And so we kind of fast tracked him and and hired him pretty quickly because it was clear like that he was a great fit for the role. So unfortunately, it was so many years ago, I don't really remember the dynamics, but. But I know it was one of our first few executive hires, basically. Like, I think I think it was like marketing, then sales. And then maybe this was the third. I'm not 100% sure, though. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's a pretty... I mean, to already be chief customer officer at AppDynamics, like, that's a pretty senior person. Yeah, I think it can, to your point, like, it can also be difficult. Like, as a growth company or a startup... And when Hotem joined, I would say we were probably still more of a startup. Um, it can be, you want the best execs in the world to join you. Like you want Jeff Bezos to come and run product for you. Uh, but Jeff Bezos doesn't want to come and run product for you. <laughs> you know, he's like hanging out, retired, doing whatever he wants. Yeah. So you you want to shoot for like the best leaders you can get. But the best, best leaders um, have good things going on. And... Hatem, I think, was running like a massive team and we had to convince him to come and like start from almost nothing. I mean, a small support team, basically. Um, And I think that's really where like amazing CEOs, I give Ali like all the credit for this, but I think also we helped as the founding team can kind of like convince. You have to paint a picture for those people of Mm -hmm. like, hey, look, here's where we are now. We're tiny, but like this thing could be huge. It could actually be much bigger than the thing you're doing. And you get to kind of get off the roller coaster and go on it again. Um, Mm -hmm. But but definitely it can be, you know, it's kind of like like the the people that you most want are going to be the hardest to get convinced to come into the role. And you need to like be able to sell them on the vision and kind of convince them why they should do it. And, you know, the people who are dying to do the role will be maybe the people where it's like, this is like by far the best job they've ever had. And it's like, you know, and those may not be the people that are going to be able to come in right away and be experts at the role. Yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. I want to pivot and talk about AI because I know you've been working on that a lot and everybody's talking about AI. Everyone wants to hear about AI. Um, yeah. What are you, what are you working on? So we are doing a lot of work on AI systems. Um, and we've been doing machine learning of various sorts for a while, but, but there's certainly been a breakthrough in like the last, you know, consumers, the, the funny thing is like now consumers and everyday people kind of see what's going on because they're right. like, Oh, cool. Like this, 
these like chatbots that are uh, able to do kind of sophisticated like reasoning and and they can get information for me and like wow that's pretty cool and that technology was like mostly there already i just don't think like the average person had a, a really like easy way to interact with it so i right. think that like some of these consumer chatbots like chatgpt and the google one and stuff have have given people visibility and like how sophisticated the technology has become um and we certainly spend a lot of time working on what we're working on is like how do you help enterprises companies build tools and applications using these technologies and and it turns out that like the way these technologies evolve let me let me pause and give an analogy so so for self-driving cars there was um a huge breakthrough like 10 years ago or maybe even a little bit longer ago and like they kind of got the basics of self-driving kind of working i remember the first demos had come out of like google waymo yeah. or something but but it turned out that like actually making it work all the time and making it work really well and having it be safe is really 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 hard like they've spent 10 years and hundreds of billions of dollars and where the average consumer experience is still kind of the same. Like you have like lane keeping in many cars, mm -hmm. but like you, we are the world where like you get in and there's no steering wheel and you're just like, Oh, take me to like, you know, wherever I'm going, it's still very, very far away. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and in limited context, it's working like in San Francisco, there are fully driverless cars just I for know, that city. Yeah, just for that city, because it's a lot easier to deal with like a very constrained set of like these machine learning models have basically memorized every street in San Francisco. Right, so like, right, there's right. nothing unknown to them. Um, but but it's it's still very far away from like even a decade later from like I just show up and my car can take me anywhere that I right. want. It's like it, it, there was a very rapid progress at the beginning. And then to actually make this stuff work was hard and it took time and it took a lot of engineering. So, so I think these, these sort of, uh, language models and chat based systems are very going through a very similar pattern. Like the, the, the consumer facing thing where you can do like a demo and you can ask it some questions is like very quickly had huge progress. Right. But if you want to talk about these things, like replacing a human for an enterprise or, or a business, it's very far away from that, which is actually, I think, good for society. Like, I think it's kind of risky if suddenly, like, overnight, there's some technology that comes and every job changes. I, I think that that's not going to happen. But yeah. what will happen is that um, is that certain types of things companies are doing can be done more efficiently or can be automated. And mm -hmm. that will happen slowly with a lot of effort to make those things really, really work. Because as, as a business, you can't like if it's a consumer product and it's for like doing search, basically, if it gives you wrong answers, like 5% of the time, it's not a big deal. Right. Like, like who cares? But if it's like something you're putting in front of your customers and it, it says something once in a while, that's like, toxic or it says something that's like racist or it says it gives and it gives someone a refund when they actually weren't entitled to a refund or mm -hmm, the opposite mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. that's not acceptable for like a company that's like a huge reputational risk so so to actually make these things like work in a way that they're completely reliable is going to be a lot of work and that's kind of where, where we focus um i i do think 
of all the use cases, like customer support is one that is one of the, will be one of like the earliest things yeah. uh, where these models can have impact. Um, but I don't think we're like right around the corner from a huge change. I think it will like slowly, what we're seeing in our customers is like, the first thing they do is they just augment their existing support teams. So like, maybe there's a model that's like listening in on the call when there's customer support happening and it can, um, it can like suggest some ideas to the person yeah. who's doing the support. And that's actually just helping that person be more efficient. Um, and it's going to be a long time before like those tasks can be like fully automated. Um, but, uh, but it will come eventually. And then hopefully it will just enable people to like spend their time on things that are more sort of less, less um, mechanical and right. you can just redeploy your, your folks in other areas. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I agree that we're already seeing that transformation in customer success and, and um, I think more, more and more it's, it's how do you use the technology wisely that, but not take away the human element. Right. So like you said, empowering your support team to be more efficient, but I would argue, especially for enterprise B2B, there's always going to need to be that more strategic human interaction. Um, it's just figuring out where, where does that make the most sense and where do people actually not want to talk to a human? Because there are a bunch of times when, I mean, I'm sure anybody listening to this has had instances where, you know, they're using a, a product and something's not working. And if they can just go and look at the, you know, support um, or the knowledge base and figure it out themselves, that's a lot better than having to like call in and do a phone tree and wait for somebody to respond. So, um, yeah, but I, I think there is a fear and customer success is one of the, uh, professional fields where people are the most nervous of AI and basically not having a job. So if you, what would you just, what would you say to somebody who thinks that like, because of AI, their job is going to be obsolete? What, yeah, what advice that's a, would you give them? That's a great question. So I think like, uh, first of all, as I said, I think it's going to come slowly. It's not going to come like really quickly. Um, and, and there are certain areas of customer success that I think will never be. I mean, a lot of customer success is about relationships and right. hu humans are social creatures. We like develop trust in people. We want to, um, we want to work with other humans and like, that's just not something an AI can ever really do. Um, so I think certain areas are not particularly, I would say, vulnerable to like being automated. Um, other areas could could be automated over time. And there I would say like, uh, first of all, it happened more slowly than people think. The other thing is I would give the same advice I always give to anyone, which is just like try to consistently up-level your skill set. And, um, and, and if you follow that path, you're going to be totally fine. Um, that's my, that's my, my thinking. I don't know what you've seen as like you've, I mean, I'm sure there's been a topic of much discussion, so I don't know what your perspective is on it. Yeah. I mean, the same as you, like the jobs that it's always been the case that the jobs that are available now are not the same jobs that are going to be 
available in five, 10 years. It's just that it's, it is happening a little bit faster than when we were graduating college. But, but yeah, I remember, I remember being at Vanderbilt, which I, did you know I, I applied early decision there? I did not know that. And I did not go to Vanderbilt. So you can, you can guess so what I can, happened sorry, there. I have to use some inference skills there. Yeah. Anyway, but, but one of the things that really struck me is when we were doing the tour and there was a, um, so the I don't know the dean was speaking or somebody and and I mean it it's not a super novel concept but it was the first time I really heard about you know just education and being curious and because you can't just say unless you're like a doctor or a lawyer or whatever you can't you usually can't say okay I'm gonna do this when I graduate and then I'll be doing that for 10 years because the, the positions change. And so, yeah, so up-leveling is huge. And yeah, I mean, I don't really have much to add. I mean, there's always going to be the human element for customer success specifically. I kind of think about it. I mean, there are so many different teams and of course it starts out with just one customer success person or just the founder. And then the organization gets more, complex and then you start to specialize. And so there are a bunch of, like you said, there's onboarding, there's customer education, there's, you know, maybe a professional services team that's doing more complex integrations. And there's account management that's doing more of the like strategic conversations with larger enterprise customers. But so there's not just two, but in my mind, I do kind of see it as that enterprise account manager and then the person that's dealing with the scale. And in the, in the scale piece where you're working with thousands of customers, um, you may not even have named accounts at all. There is, that's where they're going to be using a lot of these new tools, automation and machine learning and chatbots and all of those things. But you also need somebody that is looking at the data and understanding what is my happiest customer, my most successful customer. What does that look like? What is that customer journey? What are the milestones? What are the behaviors um, that we're observing? And how do we encourage all of our other customers to adopt those same behaviors? And so I, I would be surprised if technology could do that well anytime soon. So if I were to give advice to somebody looking to get into customer success, it would be you know, which path is more exciting to you? Because enterprise customer success, there will be some of those scale elements so that end users, for instance, can self-serve. Um, but being an enterprise CSM, and I always, I always think of Dan, my husband, when I think of this type of person, because while he is in sales, the dealing with multiple stakeholders and everybody has their own objectives and uh, objections as well that you need to um, address early on. Like it's, I like that makes my head want to explode. I go more towards the SMB, but like that's a very specific skill set. And then the scale piece and like, how are you going to really make customers successful at scale? Those, if if I were to separate customer success into two main camps, that's kind of how I think about it. Um, so, yeah. So as usual, it's just kind of listening to as well. Like, what do you like to do? What drives you? You know, which is is kind of the whole 
ultimate purpose of this podcast. Um, yeah, yeah, de- definitely. Like human relational skills are just a very important part of like pretty much every job. Um, so I, I think that, by the way, I should caveat everything I realized with like, look, the space is evolving quickly and no one knows. So like, yeah, yeah. I don't have like a perfect crystal ball. But if I were to just use pattern matching, I would say like, like when that, when that first self-driving stuff happened like 10 or 15 years ago, everyone was like, oh my gosh, you know, that's the end of, of taxi drivers and Uber drivers. Yes. And like, it's actually the opposite. Like there's way more people driving Uber now than than there were 10 years ago. Um, So, so I think it's probably true in the long term. In the long term, eventually they'll figure the stuff out and like there will be fewer human drivers, but it's like a generation to like get it working. It's not like a year to get it working. Right. So, so I think that um, now I, I do feel bad because if I say that and then there's some massive breakthrough, like who knows, but, but I, my, my hunch is it will carry out like s- similar, like earlier um, yeah. breakthroughs where it's just going to take a lot of time for it to work its way through and, and if someone, I would not advise anyone to make like drastic career decisions based on speculation. I would say like, keep an eye on what's happening and see where the, 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 the needs are of employers and try to gravitate towards what you think will be most valuable in your career. But I would not like encourage anyone that's in a successful career to like suddenly totally do a pivot because they're worried AI is going to take over right. what they're doing. Do you like what you do? So early, it's funny, I was just talking, I was talking today to a, or yesterday to a founder that like just decided to step aside as a CEO of a company that was actually a company that was doing very well, but they stepped aside. Um, and we were talking about uh, why they did that. And, um, and, and I was telling them a story that someone told me early on at Databricks uh, it wasn't a Databricks person. It was someone that had been at Google in the early days. And they said, um, they said the following, they said, there's three types of fun. Um, type one fun is it actually is like, you're having fun and it feels fun in the moment. Um, type two fun is like, it doesn't feel fun in the moment, but it feels fun in retrospect. Mm. So that's mm-hmm. like, that's like, I went on a really hard run and it was like hard, but I had fun like thinking back, but it didn't really feel fun in the moment. And type three fun is like, it's neither fun in the moment nor in retrospect. <laughs> and um, why is that a type of fun? Yeah, it's kind of a joke because it's like not fun, basically. Um, so there's two types of fun? So there's really two types of fun. But anyway, uh, so then I always try to think like, how much of my life am I spending in like type one fun and type two fun and type mm. three fun? And I think it's mostly one and two. Like there's a good amount of two. There's a good amount of like toil that... I look back and I'm like, oh, that was hard, but I'm actually really like, I'm excited about what happened and like, it was good. And I feel like I got better and, but it was kind of rough in the moment. Um, but, but you got to be careful when it's type three fun and that's a lot of your life. Like if it's like, it's rough in the moment. And then even like, if I look back and I'm trying to distill some higher, like, did I get some value out of this? Even then I, it still doesn't feel like that. And I, I think when I told that story to this person, they're like, oh, I think I was spending too much time in type three. That's why I had to step down. Um, and so for me, I enjoy it because it's mostly, it's mostly either like really fun or, or really rewarding in some higher level way mm-hmm. that, but it's not really fun necessarily. Um, but I do keep an eye on like how much, 
certainly if, if you're living life and your life is sort of toil, I, I think it's, you should try to get into a different place. So, yeah. um, so I try to keep an eye on like making sure that not too much of it, it's a hard job, right. But yeah. not too much of it is getting into this like zone. That's maybe not the most rewarding. Yeah. And kind of back to that question of like what it's like to be so young and have had so much success. How do you think about the future? And, you know, because for most people, it's like, for most people it would be a dream to get where you are ever. And like, you've already kind of reached the pinnacle. I mean, okay, you're not Jeff Bezos, but like, do you want to be? Um, but like, you know, you're, you're up there. And so when you think about your life and your goals professionally, how do you, I mean, how do you think towards the future when you've already done so much? I think the same, like, I think the same career framework has always been kind of like the, the case for me, regardless of like where, where I am. And it's just like, how, how can I, how can I be like in a very different position in five years from now than I am now in, in terms of skills and, and, and impact and interest. And like when I, when I went to Berkeley you know, that was not a decision that was optimizing for compensation. I think I, sure. I think I was like, I think I worked it out and they were paying us like less than minimum wage so, somehow. So you do actually, when you're a PhD student, because you have to teach, you do get paid, but barely like, yeah. and I think I worked it out and like somehow they'd found a loophole and like I was being paid less than minimum wage on an hourly basis. Mm. Um, which is funny because it's the state of California that runs the university. So they should have to follow the rules. Right. But, um, but, uh, but anyway, so that was not like, so basically I would say I had the luxury of like not having to optimize for, I just need to immediately do the thing that makes the most money for my family or for whatever. And, and many people have, don't have that luxury. Like they just, right. they just like have to like do the thing that gets them the most compensation right now, because that's what they need. And like, yeah, so, so a lot of people live that way. And, and I had the luxury of like not having that. So I could just optimize for like this other framework, which is just, um, how can I kind of like learn, accelerate my own learning and skill development as fast as possible. And, and usually for me that, um, that's the answer to that is just go work with the best people that you can find, like go work with the best people that will are willing to work with you. Um, and so even though Databricks has come a long way, it, I still think like looking forward, I apply the same framework and, and right now uh, at the company, there's really remarkable people there. Uh, it's still growing a lot. I I continue to learn a lot every day. So as long as all those things are true, like I think I'm able to feel like I keep I keep growing. Um, and it's funny because you are painting a little bit the picture of like, oh well, like you know, do it to someone like me, like have it all, and like everything's amazing. But actually, day to day is like really difficult. Still, I mean, yeah. there's like we're we're competing in very intense markets. And like now, now that we're successful, our competition is like mm. big, well-funded, entrenched companies. And yeah. we're still in a very, um, a real like talent war going on. And 
So it's like day to day is still, it does not feel like, oh, I just like get up and go on a yacht and like smoke cigars. It's very, very hard. And, but in its own way, that's, um, that's gratifying because if you go and like do something hard and then you're able to succeed more often than you fail, you feel like gratified. Right. So, yeah. Well, um, and another thing that you've talked about is just the, the pressure of having so many people's lives in your hands in terms of like their career and the decisions that you make and the impact that it has on this business. Now that it has 7,000 people, you know, it, make the wrong decision and it could result in a bunch of layoffs. Yeah, that definitely weighs on me. Like I think the the things that have gotten easier are as I said earlier, like the company isn't constantly at risk of dying. Right. Um, so that's great. Um the which just any small company is. Um the things that have gotten harder is that there's just more people impacted by anything that right. we do. Um and we're very lucky that we haven't, you know, in the last few years, almost every company of, of our size has had to do some significant uh, layoffs and stuff like that. And we're, we're lucky we haven't had to do that because the, the revenue growth has been good enough to fund the business well without having to do, you know, any major changes or reductions in staff. Um, but, you know, f- over the, over the next decade, I'm sure there will be times when that, when that does happen. And like, um, and it's, it's hard not to feel like I do feel responsible. Like, like if, if we mismanage the company in some way that causes us to have to lay people off or, you know, like that is our fault as leadership. Like, I think leadership needs to take ownership when those things happen. Um, so, so that certainly weighs on me. Um, but at the same, at the same time, you can't like be paralyzed in decision-making because of fear, you know, you need Mm -hmm. to like try and just, rationally do the right thing for the company and make good decisions and not live in live in with too much pressure. So yeah. I think it's uh it's hard to like balance those things. Yeah. Well Patrick, thank you. Thank you for um being my first well I had a I'm releasing one today that is a marketing person, but you're my first like not even go to market person. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it's cool to hear from other perspectives of, you know, how important customer success really is, because um, most people don't really get it yet. Yeah, I think it's um, it's an important it's a really important area for us. And, and hopefully this perspective was helpful uh, yeah. to your your audience and yeah. yourself. Yeah, definitely. All right, Patrick. Well, um, I will talk to you soon and see you in San Francisco in a couple of weeks. Okay. Yeah. I'll see you when you're out here. Nice. Thank you so much for listening to Success Unscripted. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating or writing a review. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss out on future episodes. You can find the audio wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to watch the recorded video, head on over to YouTube. My goal is to bring you stories that educate and inspire you. So if you have any questions, thoughts, feedback, or you have someone in mind that you think might be a great future guest, don't hesitate to reach out. I post episodes every other Friday, so I'll see you in two weeks.